has scored for Toronto! The Leafs win! The Leafs win! And it's going to be rattled out and down the ice. This is bouncing into the net! Holy mackerel! That is a 197-foot shot! Vessa, I'm sorry, but you're going to be on every highlight film and show for the next month. Neilander in front for Matthews! Oh, and he had a great chance. Another shot by Neilander. Center in front. They score! They score! Austin Matthews opens the scoring. Welcome to the NHL. Here's Matthews with Neilander. Two on one. Back to Matthews. He scores! Four goals. Do you believe this? Holy back it up. The kids on fire. There it goes last to the bench. Empty net. Leafs get it out in center. To the line. Here's Placanet. Scores! We're going to Boston, baby! Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the club. This is episode four of the Deep Geeks podcast. Thank you very much for joining us again this week. I'm your host, Thomas Mercy, and today we've got a very special treat in store for you. This episode, he graduated from the University of Windsor, was the voice of the Subway Wolves for eight seasons, was also the voice of the Nova Scotia Voyagers of the American Hockey League from 1980 to 1982. He is currently the voice of the Toronto Maple Leafs for 38 years, calling over 3,000 NHL games, and was inducted into the the media wing of the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2018. Holy Mackinac, it's Joe Bowen. Joe, thank you so much for joining us this week. It's an absolute honor and pleasure having you on here. Well, thank you. After all of that buildup, maybe we should just uh, say thank you, goodbye, and we'll just move <laughs> on. <laughs> Me as well. I mean, as far as introductions go, that was uh, that was uh, that got the whole career all capsulized. We don't have anything else to talk about. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, we do have a whole lot to talk about. You know, obviously, there's no NHL going on right now, so it's a lot tougher to not talk about what's currently going on. But we can obviously talk about the season. We'll get into that now. Obviously, Joe, you are back home in Unionville right now. Uh, how's the isolation been treating you down there in southern Ontario? Well, I, I make a joke about this, Thomas, and the fact that for 11 straight years, the Leafs were knocked out of the playoffs. So the month of April, I pretty much was doing this anyway. Yeah. Putzing <laughs> uh, around the yard and doing a few things and whatnot. Uh, I still play slow pitch, so our ball season usually didn't start till the uh, second week in May or so. So um, I've had more experience at this possibly than others, although for those 11 years, I was running around after a, a little guy, my last, uh, my, uh, uh, fourth boy, my son David. So, having said that, it's it's been different. Uh, it's been difficult at times. The most difficult aspect is uh, not being able to see family and friends, and my two grandkids as well. So, we've been doing a lot of this type of thing uh, over the internet and uh, and staying close. Yeah, it's definitely been tough for a lot of people, I would imagine, for yourself. And, you know, obviously for David, it's tough for the way his season ended. We'll talk about him a little bit later on in the show. You and I first met back in 2016 at the uh, Subway Wolves rookie camp when David was uh, trying out for the Wolves. And, you know, I've told you that you inspired me to get into broadcasting. And uh, and now I'm with the Wolves and the Canadians. And, of course, with your son playing for Rayside Balfour, it's just all come full circle. Um, and with you graduating from the University of Windsor, I just wanted to ask you, what made you want to get into broadcasting hockey games and what's your journey been like to get to this point? 
Uh, I wanted to get into broadcasting because I wasn't nearly as good as David is at playing goal. Um, <laughs> I, when I was growing up, there were six jobs. Uh, there weren't an awful lot of backup goaltenders playing in the National Hockey League in a six-team league, and uh, my idol was Johnny Bauer, and I wanted mm-hmm. to be the next uh, the end line to play goal for the Toronto Maple Leafs, and uh, very early on in high school realized that probably wasn't going to happen. But uh, my dad had passed away uh, when I was just going into high school. Uh, he was a goalie. Uh, I played goal. Uh, And so having said that, I wanted to stay in the business, if you would. He wanted me, my dad, who was a general surgeon in Sudbury, wanted me to go to university. So instead of a uh, a college like Ryerson that had a a, a television and radio course, I went to the University of Windsor because they had a communication arts course and I was going to get uh, a university degree. And uh, the big break that I got was that my dad's best friend, uh, very close friend growing up and in adult life was a gentleman by the name of Bill Plant, and Mr. Plant just happened to own CKSL Radio and TV and he also just happened to own the uh, Sudbury Wolves or part owner of the Sudbury Wolves so uh, I got back uh, after university and was able to get a job right off the bat at CKSO and a couple of uh, months later Bill Catalano who was doing the games uh, when the team first came into the OHL, um, he decided to move on to CBC Radio. And uh, because I was in the door, I walked down the hall and I said to Mr. Plant, uh, Mr. Plant, I can do this. I've been doing this at the University of Windsor. And he said, yeah, I think you can. And uh, the rest is history. Wow, what an amazing story. And of course, you were born and raised here in Sudbury. So it's amazing how it's come full circle for you being a being a Sudbury, uh, Sudbury boy. And now here you are being the voice of the least for so long and uh, being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And you've uh, not only covered hockey, you've covered lacrosse as well with the Toronto Rock. Um, let's talk about that just a little bit. What was that experience like? And is it a lo- little bit more different than hockey to call? Well, I'll tell you what, when I was in Sudbury, we covered everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, We got a a small remote truck. uh, um, um, First, uh, Bob Brazo was the producer and director. And we had uh, an Inco uh, show that we had to fill. So we did kids baseball. We did soccer. We did uh, football. uh, We did downhill skiing, the Inco Cup. We did everything. So it was a well-rounded idea of broadcasting and play-by-play, if you will, in various sports. Uh, The Toronto Rock, um, Bill Waters, who was uh, then the uh, assistant general manager with the Toronto Maple Leafs and who had done color with me in the radio broadcast back in the 80s, he and, uh, as we affectionately call them, the Aurelia Mafia, Mm. bought the um, uh, Toronto Rock, and he wanted me to do the play-by-play. Well... I had done some lacrosse but a long time ago, and we mm-hmm. literally had to get a, a, a copy of the video from the previous uh, championship game to understand what exactly we were going to do. Um, it's very much like hockey. Uh, in fact, it's probably easier because there aren't as many turnovers. Uh, mm-hmm. You can control the ball, much like a, in basketball, where uh, you, you have your hands on it as opposed to uh, uh, you know a, a six-inch stick with a round disc. Um, so it, it's a little bit easier that way, I think. And the other aspect is is that, that 
there are offensive players and there are defensive players. And mm-hmm. as soon as the ball changes hands, the front door opens and the offense goes in there and the back door opens and the defense comes out the other side. So uh, I think it's easier probably than uh, having them changing on the fly and not knowing where they are or who's on the ice at that specific moment until you kind of get your bearings. But it was just as exciting. And mm-hmm. uh, I went a lot of money in bars. Uh, well, maybe not money, but drinks. Um, <laughs> by uh, saying who scored the last goal at Maple Leaf Gardens. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Bob Probert scored the last goal in the National Hockey League at mm-hmm. Maple Leaf Gardens. But Caleb Toth scored with two seconds left in the championship game for the National Cross League, and that was the last professional game ever played at Maple Leaf Gardens, and he scored the last goal. I remember watching that video, actually, because they uh, put it up, I believe, a couple days ago and it had your call on it. And, you know, it was very emotional, uh, emotional night in Toronto. Like you mentioned, last professional game to be played at the Gardens. And, uh, you know, it's it's pretty amazing how fast paced and hard hitting lacrosse can really be. I've never personally gone to a game myself. I've always wanted to. But watching it on TV, it's very exciting stuff. And you're right. It's it's a lot easier compared to hockey because there's oh. guys just running on artificial turf compared to guys skating on on like two, three inch steel skates. The other thing too, Thomas, is as I've often pointed out, is that the rule book for the National Lacrosse League is five pages thinner than the one used by the World Wrestling Federation. Oh my goodness. <laughs> the, the, wow. The, some of the things that go on, you go, really? He's allowed to do that? <laughs> Hack slash whack. And the other thing is if you're going to hit someone, you don't glide into him. Yeah. I mean, you you have to forcibly run over him and uh, that is allowed and and sometimes that is uh, uh, the collisions are are extraordinary and uh, it's a lot of fun Uh, by all means get down here and get it get to see a Toronto Rock game Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've already gone to see a Toronto Marlies game. I remember telling you about that amazing experience. So that's another thing to cross off my uh, my bucket list. So definitely Toronto Rock is next. Let's shift focus to the Toronto Maple Leafs. If anyone covers them as closely as they do, it's you, Joe. So let's talk about this past season. Obviously, a roller coaster year for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Currently, uh, before the NHL pause the season, we're third in the Atlantic, 36-25-9. And, nine, and uh, they were in a playoff spot. And, you know, obviously with the NHL stepping in, canceling the season on March. March 12th, it's been a real emotional season for the Leafs, and they started off on a bit of a a bit of a downside compared to last year. They were 9-10-4, went into Tuesday night against Las Vegas. They lost, and they were on a six-game slide, and then they fire Mike Babcock. And from there, things kind of went on the up and up, and there's a few moments, obviously, we'll talk about a little bit later. Um what were your thoughts on the season so far for Toronto? Obviously, there were a lot of changes, um, not just in the front office, but on the bench as well. And, you know, you being uh, very high up in the air, but you are closer to the Leafs than anybody I know. What were your thoughts on the Leafs so far this season? Well, I think it was uh, the coaching change was required. Mm-hmm. And um, if not done then it would have certainly deteriorated even more, I think. Um, having said that, um, uh, Sheldon Keith came on and things changed dra- dramatically. They turned around. Uh, the team played the kind of game that I think that they have been constructed uh, as. 
Uh, now, whether that is going to prove to be successful, whether you are ahead of the curve or behind the curve, that's where everybody's discussion is because playoff hockey is different. It becomes more physical and more intense. And can a team built the way the Maple Leafs are uh, be able to handle that? And, uh, well, unless they get this season uh, going again, which we are uh, holding out hope that they can complete the season before starting the next one, we won't know. And mm -hmm. uh, obviously, if you take a, a wider look at the league over the last 10 years, uh, the way the Leafs are going is the way the game is going. Mm -hmm. And um, you don't have to be reminded of what it was like much more than during this quarantine time when we've been able to watch, uh, you know, replays of older series. And the um, 93 series with Doug Gilmore and company has been a very big focal point down here in Toronto. And you watch that and you watch how the officiating uh, is uh, handled things and you understand why the teams played that style because they were allowed to. And mm -hmm. there was uh, an awful lot of physicality in this. But if you had a split screen of playoff game from last year and this one going on on both sides, you'd wonder whether they were the same sport uh, because the, the sport has changed. Uh, concussion protocol, uh, fighting is completely out of the game, uh, if not completely, almost. Um, so a lot of things have changed, and the game is going more and more to where the Maple Leafs seem to be heading or have headed to. So it's, it, it'll be interesting to see whether they're uh, behind the curve or whether they're ahead of the curve mm -hmm. um, and uh, how things have to be tweaked with their roster accordingly. So uh, it, it, the, the season, I think, was disappointing from the fact of what how much hype there was prior to it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that this team lived up to its advanced billing. Yeah, and like I mentioned, there were a lot of changes brought to this team. Um, you know, at the trade deadline, Dubas had a lot of faith in the team. Didn't make too many changes, of course, brought in uh, Kyle Clifford and Jack Campbell from Los Angeles, which, you know, kind of helped with their backup goaltending situation because, unfortunately, the goaltending situation um, wasn't great, especially when Anderson was injured. That was really a big detriment to the team. And obviously, the one huge change was trading Nazem Kadri to Colorado, and that was... A move that a lot of people didn't see coming, especially, you know, when you get Tyson Berry and Alexander Kerfoot, just a humongous shakeup to the roster. And, you know, obviously people have questioned Nazem's play over the years, but he was that gritty guy that the Leafs could look to to really ignite a spark with this team. And, you know, moving forward, obviously... Um, the Leafs losing a little bit of grit, obviously no more Leo Komarov and obviously not having Kadri definitely doesn't help, uh, help either. But having a guy like Jake Muzzin on your back end, despite his injuries this year, he really stepped up in a big, big way and earned himself quite the payday. Um, for In terms of the defense for the Maple Leafs, you know, what needs to happen next? Because they made a really big splash uh, yesterday signing Miko Lettinen to a one-year entry-level contract, led the KHL defenseman in points, um, picking up 17 goals, 32 assists in 60 games uh, with Jokerit. Do you think this gamble can pay off for Lettinen and maybe earn a long-term NHL contract? And do you think this move could potentially help bolster uh, bolster and boost the Leafs' defense? 
Well, that's the area where everybody seems to point their finger, I think, Thomas. And uh, let's hope Lettinen can be as uh, impactful as uh, Ilya Mikheyev was before he got hurt. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the key component from the Maple Leafs defense this season was the fact that Morgan Riley was never 100% and could not duplicate the kind of play that he had uh, two years ago. And that in itself, I think, will rectify a lot uh, on the Leafs' back end. I don't think that you're going to see – I think you're going to see a number of changes. I think Sandine is going to be a part of the defense core going forward. I would doubt that they would uh, re-up uh, Tyson Berry, who is a free agent. Mm -hmm. uh, they have Inc. Jake Muzzin, as you mentioned, who is uh, you know, a, a physical player. And you mentioned about the cadre trade, and I agree with you because I am a little more old school and uh, getting back to my thoughts on the, the curve, I mm. still think you have to be back here with some physicality and some pushback. Yeah. And when they traded cadre, there really wasn't any pushback. Mm. Um, uh, there, that part of it, I think, is going to be debated. Uh, we'll wait and see. But having said that, I think that their defense will be where the microscope is going to be placed uh, mm -hmm. predominantly throughout the course of any offseason, whenever that official offseason starts. Yeah, and obviously, like I said, you know, the defense for the lease has been struggling uh, in parts of the season, and a lot of people are pointing the blame towards Cody Cece because he was acquired in that trade with Nikita Zaitsev uh, to Ottawa. And a lot of people point the blame at him and him only. And, you know, Cece has had a hard time. It has only played for one other team, and it was with a pretty pretty rough Ottawa organization at the time. Just to point the blame at him and him only, I just don't think is the right thing to do. And, I mean, you know, he's still a young kid. He's obviously still got a lot to learn. I've been watching him since his days with the six sevens in the Ontario Hockey League and just you know obviously he needs someone to help him really really develop and you, who knows maybe even next season if he gets re-signed he could potentially you know step up in a big way but who knows what's going to happen with this Leafs team down the road one player that's really had an amazing season Joe I'm sure you can back me up on this Austin Matthews I mean what what else is there to say about this young man he was on pursuit for uh, 50 goals this year was at uh, 47 before the season was cut off his best season on paper so far in the four years he's been with the least organization averaging over a point per game he's just a special player and even from his debut you know he, you knew this kid was going to be a shining star we'll talk about that moment a little bit later on um you know obviously it, it's kind of a silly question but do you think he could have hit 50 goals this season first off the better that's irish pussycat that's uh, yeah. Yeah, Hurley's around here somewhere. He'll probably be involved in the show as well. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, I don't think there's any question that he would have probably uh, gotten 250 uh, or right in the vicinity um, as, well, as long as he was healthy through the uh, remainder of the season. Um, no, he's a tremendous talent. He really is. Um, he's a quality individual, uh, wonderful parents. Uh, and uh, just uh, uh, a talent that we have not seen here 
Uh, well, you know, you, you have generational players. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you have Daryl Sittler, Doug Gilmore, Wendell Clark moves into that. Then along comes Matt Sundin and now Austin Matthews. And certainly if he stays healthy and uh, continues to drive the way he has shown that he wants to improve and be a leader and be a, a, a generational player, um, he's going to be that. And uh, uh, just a, a tremendous ability to shoot the puck and a tremendous eye-hand coordination. Um, he's not a physical player by any stretch of the imagination, but he has tremendous skill along the boards to uh, retrieve loose pucks as well. Um, so I, I would agree with you. I think this uh, this young man is going to be, uh, if he stays healthy, and uh, that's always a, a key component, um, he's going to be a generational player that the, the Maple Leafs are going to build around for years to come. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even from his days in Zurich, you know, people expected him to be the next superstar in the league, and he's definitely proven to be that. And, you know, obviously people are going to be skeptical about Austin Matthews just because of who he plays for and the fact that people will try to relate him to Jack Eichel. You know, two different players, respectively, on two different teams that are not too far apart from one another. Give credit to Jack Eichel. He's been an amazing player since he came in, but that Buffalo team has been struggling for a couple of the seasons. You know, for Austin Matthews, a lot of people thought, you know, should they trade him and try and get bigger pieces? But then, of course, you know, they sign him to that really big contract along with Mitch Marner and William Nylander. But obviously, Dubas has a lot of faith in him. And he, it, like you said, is going to be a generational talent. He's only 22. Like, he's got a long, long way to go. And who knows, you know, how many more points he can possibly put up. And just the way he plays is something that hasn't been seen in Toronto since the early 2000s. Like, he's really that special of a player and I got to side with you Joe there's no question in my mind he would have hit 50 goals like he was just on pace to tear it up and for Austin Matthews you know obviously playing in a big market like Toronto there's obviously a lot of pressure on your plate especially when you're part of that leadership group um it's it's definitely it's definitely hard for him I would imagine obviously to try and take the criticism but he runs with it and he plays really well and you know obviously bringing in a guy like John Tavares you know being the captain of that team really helps you know he's familiar with a lot of these guys and you know even when Patrick Marlowe was there it really helped him develop because you have a veteran that has been in the NHL for so long really helped develop this kid into a shining star do you think Marlowe had an impact on guys like Matthews and Marner over the long term when he was in Toronto? Oh, no question. And I think Matt Martin had a, an impact as well because mm -hmm. he was sort of the, the guy riding shotgun for them. And uh, uh, But every young player that comes into the league and every team that decides to go on some sort of a youth movement um, have got to provide those young players with direction. And that can't come just from the coach or the manager or, or whatever. It has to come from within the dressing room. And if you don't have quality leadership in there to teach the young guys uh, how to play and how to uh, present themselves and uh, how to handle the media and how to handle uh, the external pressures that are involved in the game, uh, then what you're probably cultivating is a bad dressing room. Mm -hmm. And those rooms are hard to fix. Uh, yeah. I have often said that the National Hockey League, uh, the talent base within the league uh, from team to team, from top to bottom is uh, extraordinarily close. 
Um, there are teams that have obviously generational players. Crosby comes to mind and uh, Ovechkin, of course. But the bottom line is an attitude and atmosphere within the room and the culture that is developed within the room uh, by the leadership that is provided and by the leadership that is presented by management is the difference in why one team is successful and the other team is not. And it can change in a heartbeat. Um, the Detroit Red Wings are a perfect example where they have really fallen on some hard times, but they had all of those older guys that were there and stayed maybe a little bit too long, but that was what management thought. So having said that, uh, people like a Patrick Marlowe or a Matt Martin, uh, Leo Komarov that they have let go, uh, the addition of people like Muzzin and others have you know picked up that kind of leadership uh, band and um, the younger guys are learning. Because if you just allow them to be the guys in charge of the team at a very young age, uh, they might wander a little bit and it may not be what you want. And uh, it may not develop into a winning uh, kind of an atmosphere. And there's definitely been a lot of changes with this Leafs team. And, you know, there's a few more changes that are going to come for sure. Uh, four players have UFA deals expiring. Of course, Clifford being one of them, Jason Spezza, Cody Ceci, and Tyson Berry. And then you got a couple RFAs in Frederick Goche and Dennis Malgan to worry about. Of course, he was acquired by the Leafs before the deadline as well. Um, you know, obviously, there's going to be a lot of changes with this team. I would imagine probably this offseason because even Frederick Anderson's contract, he's on the last year of his term next season. You know, Frederick Anderson, since they acquired him from Anaheim, has proven to be a starter in this league. And obviously, it's proven to be a better goaltender than a lot of past goaltenders we've seen over the last couple of years. The, the Leafs have a lot of contract work to get ahead into. And obviously, when you pay $32 million for three, four, it you know obviously it doesn't leave a lot of cap room but i but a lot of people have a lot of faith in Kyle Dubas in what he's doing because i mean he's such a young gm but he's made some amazing moves to keep some of these guys here um what kind of path do you think Dubas is trying to take in terms of contracts and do you see him resigning any of those players that are listed off well <laughs> First off, uh, we're in such an uncharted waters, uh, a lot of things could happen that would impact uh, everything. Mm -hmm. uh, will the, the salary cap be maintained at its present level? Uh, will all of this lost revenue uh, be reflected in a lower cap? Um, you, what you have to do, and, and, and I'm, I've never been a manager, and that's why I've lasted 38 years doing what I'm doing. <laughs> um, but having said that, um, you have to identify your core. Uh, in that core, you have to be absolutely convinced that the people that are in that core are the ones you want to build around. Uh, some will have to be a little bit older. Uh, Morgan Riley's name comes to uh, mind. Mm -hmm. uh, others are going to be uh, possible generation players. Marner and Matthews obviously are there. I think those are your three players. And yep. the Chicago Blackhawks won three Stanley Cups because they identified their core. Uh, they understood that's where they were going to go. 
and everyone else was a moving piece. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, with the salary cap being in effect, a lot of those moving pieces uh, are pretty good. And you can you have to kind of be able to fit the the square peg into the round hole sometimes because of the finances. But having said that, I think that when you are able to identify your core and that core is, in fact, representative of one of the best in the National Hockey League, then a lot of things can change. Uh, and uh, the the different names, and like I said before, the talent level in this league from top to bottom is very, very close. And you're more interested, I think, uh, as far as getting three players of equal value who's going to fit best in our room and who is going to be uh, a a guy that's going to be a very key component in developing the atmosphere of the team. And um, that's where I think a lot of teams fall down, uh, not looking at people's character as much as just, boy, this guy's a real good player. And there are a lot of real good players and more coming by the year out of junior hockey. Mm -hmm. So it's more important to do a little more background and find out what is this guy like? Um, What is his personality? What does he like to do off the ice? What kind of a person is he at home? What kind of a person is he off the ice? Because that will end up being a, a very big important piece to the puzzle when you finally decide on your roster. And when you look down at the American Hockey League, obviously some big names. One of you, uh, one of them you mentioned, of course, Rasmus Sandin, uh, Timothy Lilsgren, who's still developing, Jeremy Bracco as well, who's really nicely developed down in the American Hockey League. You know, obviously you take those names into factor for next year and the years to come. Obviously, you would imagine Rasmus Sandin being on this blue line in the future. But again, to get a piece, you obviously have to move a piece to make room in uh, salary cap because obviously you got to sign Sandin, especially if he performs up to a big time contract. They're going have to sign him and obviously you know they're taking a bit of a gamble with letting and signing him to that entry-level contract but if he develops he could potentially be a really special player for the toronto maple leafs and you know if he has a really good season he can earn a contract whether it be with the leafs or another team in the national hockey league and that's going to be a big test for him and for guys like sandine and lilsgren and bracco to really develop and try and get up to this next level let's shift focus to your son david of course uh you know you've been here in uh, Sudbury uh, since he started with the Wolves when he was drafted. Uh, he's, of course, playing for Race I know, which is, of course, the team I cover. And he he's had a really interesting journey, to say the least. He, of course, got his first OHL start with the Wolves in the 17-18 season against Flint, recorded his first win in North Bay on March 8th. I remember being there and calling the game with Brian Cooper, uh, being there for that moment. Of course, you were obviously very happy, very emotionally. The entire family was there. And then he started this season with Rayside Balfour and then eventually would go to Quebec with Drummondville uh, in the QMJHL and then return back to Rayside Balfour. And then next thing you know, he gets a call from Stillman on March 23rd to play against the number one team in the entire country, the Auto 67s, and puts up his first OHL shutout, making 26 saves. Of course, you were there when it happened. I called the game. It, it was quite a shakeup, and it paid off big time for the Wolves and David. Of course, you know I remember seeing the picture of you hugging David outside of the locker room. Obviously, very emotional moment for you. Uh, just run it, run us through that process of that day. Just how special was that for you? Because of course, you mentioned you were a goaltender in your earlier days of hockey. What's that moment like for you to see your son get his first OHL shutout against a team like Ottawa? 
Well, it was obviously it was very special, Thomas. And uh, uh, David's career, and you mentioned it's a bit of a uh, circuitous route, I suppose. We will we'll always uh, be very grateful for uh, Ken McKenzie and uh, uh, the general manager, uh, of course, Rob Papineau, who uh, went out, or it wasn't Rob, actually, I guess it was uh, um, previous general manager who drafted David. Um, the uh, David was playing up a year. He was playing midget hockey instead of minor midget. I thought he was playing exceptionally well, um, but I wasn't scouting and I wasn't watching minor midget goaltenders. I asked a friend of mine who had coached one of my older boys who was scouting uh, for the Niagara Falls uh, team, and uh, I asked him if he would come and watch him, and he did. And after a game that I thought David played real well, he uh, walked out and never said a word to me. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that's mm-hmm. fine. Um, and uh, a couple of weeks, uh, maybe a month later, I ran into him again. I said, uh, you know, what did you think of David play? I said, oh, I've been back three times. I think he's better than three quarters of the goalies who are in the minor midget year. Well, that kind of, I thought that's interesting. He wanted to put him on the list. I said, yeah, sure. And so I made a couple of phone calls then, and one was to Ken McKenzie. I talked to Doug Gilmore. I talked to the Hunter brothers and a couple, and and Elliot Kerr and whatnot, just to say, you know, you'd have to come and watch him specifically because he was not playing minor midget. He wasn't in the minor midget showcases and stuff of that nature. And the Wolves took a flyer on him and, and drafted him. And I said to David at the time, and we've always been very front and center about this is that the first thing you have to understand about playing hockey at any level uh, when you get this far is it's not fair. Mm -hmm. It will not be fair. And uh, and there'll be reasons for it that you scratch your head and wonder why and why not. Uh, but uh, you're going to be in a long list of people who are on a bus saying, had I give, been given the chance, I think I could have played and played well. Well, David's in that bus. Um, you know, he, three years, um, and you mentioned uh, the games that you saw him play, um, and, and we do as well, think that he played very, very well. Mm-hmm. And yet he has really never been given an opportunity to run with the ball. And and that will be something that will be, you know, that'll be something that he'll be telling his grandkids later on. I think I could have done something, but I didn't get the chance mm-hmm. to kind of run with the ball. And this year was a, a very frustrating one because he had, I thought he was the best goaltender in the Wolves camp. Uh, a couple of exhibition games, the team didn't play very well at all. They lost to Ottawa, and very quickly they decided uh, that they were going to trade a bunch of draft picks and bring in uh, an experienced, uh, well, an experienced goaltender from North Bay. And then, of course, their season, I think, uh, admittedly, and, and I'm not from just my viewpoint, I think a lot of people thought that one of the, the Achilles heel of the Wolves this year was their goaltending that was... Yep. Very, uh, you know, it, it just wasn't consistent. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, you know, David never got a chance to be brought up. And when the opportunity to go to Quebec came, it did. And then again, we said things aren't going to be fair. He never got a mm-hmm. chance to play there. And finally, we decided uh, they made a, a trade for a younger goaltender. And David was a free agent, and uh, fortunately, Jeff Forsyth, I phoned him, and he was looking for a goalie and really want, and was v- very excited about David coming back. And so David was excited, too, because he loves playing for uh, the uh, Canadians. He loves uh, playing with, uh, for Jeff. Um, and then the game that uh, he was brought up, 
was too late. Um, mm -hmm. He couldn't stay because he was up on a, uh, he wasn't a contractual part of the Wolves anymore. He was just being brought up as a, a part of their farm system. And so he was allowed to play, I think, six games, but none of the playoffs. So yeah. they weren't going to be able to maintain him. And so there you go. He's come up and played two real good games. And as you mentioned, he uh, shut out the Ottawa 67s and played very well. And uh, a crowning moment for dad and son, certainly. Uh, in that game, but um, you know, he as I said, that's you. You never know. But I also mm -hmm. have told him, you also never know when opportunity will strike again. And um, if he goes back and plays with Rayside, he's an overage player. But I understand from what I've been told that uh, the OHL is going to allow four overage players this year, as long as one is a goalie. Oh, so wow. maybe he'll get maybe he'll get another opportunity, and if he does mm -hmm. get an opportunity, maybe they'll let him run with the ball. But uh, but who knows? But uh, at this point, we're very very proud of him. My three older boys are absolutely uh, pissed at me because <laughs> I convinced them not to play goal. And now they think that it might have been in the family's genes because David has gone further than any of the other ones. And so now they're pissed at me for not letting them play goal the way dad and granddad did. So uh, you can't win, right? You just can't win. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely not an easy journey for any goaltender realistically. But I mean, for David this season, amazing numbers with Rayside. 18 wins, 5 losses. And of course, he was part of that long run for the Canadiens that went over 12 games and uh, put up two shutouts as well. He was now, an integral Thomas, part. You know, one thing, I, I, and I, I, don't, I don't want to sound bitter um, mm -hmm. because... Uh, I mean, we're 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 disappointed, uh, yeah. but I certainly cannot be bitter about uh, the Sudbury Wolves. Mm -hmm. uh, they've allowed him to play. Uh, they have uh, signed him to a deal that is going to allow him to uh, be able to go to university and uh, have a lot of money there uh, mm -hmm. for doing that. And for that, we'll be eternally grateful. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, as I said to David, David, you you were drafted out of Double A midget. Um, and to at least have gone this far, I mean, yeah, you're, you can be uh, disappointed, but I don't think bitterness is any part of it. And we certainly mm -hmm. don't have that. Uh, I'm probably bitter about the boys in Drummondville because <laughs> after they traded for him, they didn't give him a chance. So uh, I will uh, probably leave that as far as the boys, Philip Boucher and Steve Hartley and, and Drummondville, uh, uh, I probably don't have too much time for. Yeah, and, you know, obviously really emotional season for him. But like you said, he loves playing in Chelmsford, and we love having him. Just an amazing season. He would have been part of a really long run for Rayside Belfort, heavily favored as an early contender for the NOGHL championship. And, you know, if David obviously comes back, going to be a really, really big piece for the Canadians because well, he only he, really lost three he players. Definitely, he definitely is uh, ticketed, and we're looking forward to having him come back. And he's going to enroll full-time at Laurentian to uh, get his school going as far as the uh, sports administration program is concerned so uh, Sudbury will be another calling card uh, we'll be back up there this coming uh, season uh, hopefully uh, in the not too distant future no, that's that's perfect. And I mean, Laurentian has, uh, you know, they're fairly new to the hockey program, obviously, in the last couple of years, but are on a really big upswing and brought in a lot of former OHL talent. So for David, that's a really good opportunity for him. And, you know, obviously, I'll, if I'm working for Rayside, would love to have him back. Always a great guy to talk to. Great in the locker room as well. So going to be a welcome, uh, welcome back addition for the Canadians if he comes back next year. Let's talk about... Uh, 
a few friends of yours, of course, that have unfortunately uh, passed away. Of course, Johnny Bauer and Pat Quinn, you have obviously had really great relationships with them. Of course, Johnny Bauer, like you said, your favorite goaltender growing up and played for 12 seasons with the Leafs from 58 to 69, was part of those three straight cups from 62 to 64. And then, of course, Quinn was the head coach for the Leafs from 1998 to 2006. And both, of course, Hall of Famers and just, you know, you obviously talk a lot about your relationships with them and how special they are to you. Um, what's your favorite story and memory with the two of them? Well, um, actually, I guess the, the, the first time that I met Johnny Bauer, uh, Jimmy Hines, who was a, uh, a lawyer friend of my dad's, uh, took my mother and I to a game in Toronto, the first NHL game I'd ever been to uh, after my dad had passed. And um, he and George Armstrong were very, very close. Uh, and in fact, Jimmy Hines was probably an unofficial agent before agents were allowed. Uh, so he was a, a, an advisor for uh, uh, George Armstrong, who, of course, was from Skeed. And so um, George took us through the dressing room and I got to meet Johnny, my idol, uh, Terry Sawchuk, all of these guys. This would have been uh, in the 66, 67 season, probably. So uh, this was just prior to them going on to win the Stanley Cup for the last time in 67. And I, I was tongue-tied. I, I couldn't say a word. I shook hands. I, I apologized later. But when I got to Sudbury again and I was doing the Wolves games, the first season... We get into Oshawa and Bob Helpert, uh, who was doing color for me, and he comes up to me and says, uh, I've got the first period intermission uh, guest for you. I said, oh, get who's that? And he said, Johnny Bauer. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, right. Get a lot. You know, he knew how much I uh, <laughs> idolized him. And sure enough, John was there. Um, doing, uh, you know, doing scouting for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And wow. um I mean, I was just hama 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 hama. I just it, it starstruck, mm -hmm. and uh, he was just the nicest man, and just uh, couldn't do enough for you. And uh, said, "Oh yeah, I've heard you," and "Oh yeah," and all that. I mean, whether he did or not, he was he was blowing a lot of air in my tires. And mm -hmm. um, so fast forward, we go and uh, we get to uh, me coming to Toronto, and one of the first people to come and see me at training camp that first training camp and sit with me in the seats was Johnny Bauer and George Armstrong. Wow. And I sat there with them for maybe an hour and a half or so, and I never laughed harder. And I wish <laughs> I had been able to record the session uh, because all they did was tell stories about each other. They didn't want to tell a story about themselves, but they, mm -hmm. but they could hardly wait to tell a story about one another. And some of them were just hysterical, their life on the road, how they teased each other, how they pranked each other, everything that went on. And it was delightful. But, but the more that you got to hang around Johnny and the more you watched him interact with fans, the more you just said, this is just such a special, special person never mind what kind of a player he was but what such a special special person i'd go to a number of events and johnny would be there and he'd be signing autographs and he's supposed to be there till 1 30. Mm -hmm. well the line still had a long ways to go and johnny wasn't leaving 
I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll stay. You guys, if you guys have to go, go, go right ahead. But I'm not disappointing anyone. Wow. And and a lot of athletes obviously go out and do special things. And but it, you know what? They have their own private time. There, I understand that. You're here till two o'clock. I'm sorry, folks, but uh, I've got to go. Yeah. Well, John never said that. He just sat there and did what was asked. And 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 uh, I don't think you could find. Uh, a person that had ever had any contact with him whatsoever that would not say what an f- outstanding, fine human being he was. Oh, yeah, and I guess he was a pretty good goalie mm-hmm. as well. And uh, we've had uh, uh, a lot of interaction with his family, uh, John Bauer II and John Bauer III. Uh, they've started a foundation with uh, Johnny Bauer, uh, his name in it. Um, we were hoping to have a real big event this uh, early in June. That has been postponed because of the virus and whatnot going on. But uh, his name will live in perpetuity, and it will be those people that remember I've often teased uh, his wife, Nancy, who I love dearly, who celebrated, I believe, was her 94th birthday uh, a little earlier. I said, Nancy, you know your husband. There, uh, there isn't a good-looking woman in Toronto that doesn't have a photograph with her and your husband <laughs> because he was always taking pictures and the women would just flock to him. He was like a chick magnet. Yeah. Uh, but just one of the nicest people you're ever going to meet. Pat Quinn. Uh, is a very special person as well. <clears throat> he, uh, I, I mean, when he arrived here, uh, and, and here's another example of uh, how close talent is in the National Hockey League and how attitude and atmosphere changes things. Um, Mike Murphy, who I, I love dearly, was coaching the Toronto Maple Leafs, and um, all you heard at the end of the season from everyone there isn't anybody on this roster that can play. This is just a bunch of dog poop. It's nothing. And Pat Quinn arrived, and we were in uh, in uh, Hamilton for the first training camp. And um, he went through the first day of training camp. And he came off the ice, and he kind of waved at me to come over. And I walked over to him. He said to me, Joe, there's a hell of a lot more talent here than I've been led to believe. And he was right. He mm-hmm. took that team, made some astute changes. Thomas Coberley, one of them, uh, Bears in another. But for all intents and purposes, the core that returned that was just horrid, all of a sudden became pretty good. Mm-hmm. And pretty good got them into the playoffs the first year. And Pat Quinn made the playoffs every year until his last season, and which uh, management may have uh, did the knee-jerk reaction that most managements do when you don't get into the playoffs. Um, they they fired Pat. Yeah. But having said that, uh, we had a great relationship. Uh, Harry Neal, who used to do uh, color with me, uh, Pat Quinn and, and Ricky Lee, we would have our annual golf outing uh, where the losers had to buy dinner. And trust me, before Pat had that uh, heart scare in the series against uh, Carolina, he and Ricky Lee could eat like no two human beings I ever saw. And I ended up having to pay a lot of it because I'm not a very good golfer. But we had a lot of fun with them. Um, Pat was um, very open with me. Uh, he obviously trusted me. Uh, and I and I made sure that uh, he didn't have anything 
to not trust me about. Uh, I, I heard a lot of inside things that uh, ended right there at the bottom of the last glass that we had at the bar. And um, it was always uh, a very, very special individual and uh, a wonderful coach. Mm -hmm. And you can't find a player that played for Pat that said, you know, I didn't like playing for him at all. Yeah. Uh, he, was a, he was a player's coach and he got the most out of them. Yeah, he was definitely one of those coaches that, you know, respects you. If you respect him, he'll respect you. That's how and that's how great of a coach he was. And of course, you know, my days of being a Leafs fan, the only person I remember behind the bench was Pat Quinn because he was there for the majority of my childhood. And, uh, you know, like you said, was part of those uh, part of those amazing days of Leafs hockey, bringing in guys, you know, like Matt Sundy and Thomas Caberle, who I idolize so much. And obviously, you know, to lose people like Johnny Bauer and uh, Pat Quinn, obviously just terrible losses but again for for until the end of time their names are forever going to be enshrined into Leafs history. Joe let's talk about some memorable Leafs moments that a lot of people still talk about to this day. One that you alluded to of course May 1st 1993 Game 7 of the 1993 Stanley Cup playoffs in the division semifinal. Nikolai Borshevsky scored the overtime winner to pull off the upset against the Detroit Red Wings and then eventually sent to the Leafs to the uh, leading up to that conference final and of course, you know, your call lives in infamy of how amazing that moment was. Of course, you know, Mike Felino's overtime winner was great in itself. But the Nikolai Borshevsky goal was so iconic because of the era of Leafs hockey that it was, of course, with Doug Gilmore and company, like you mentioned. Uh, just describe the moment for everyone, because obviously, you know, it was in such a such a historic venue like the Joe Lewis Arena, of course, no longer um no longer active but just describe the moment for everybody because you of course were on the airways and you had one of the best seats in the house for that well i don't know if we had the best seat in the house but we had a memorable <laughs> seat uh, oh, i'll yeah. tell you a couple of stories uh first off um the joe lewis arena was uh, the press box was an afterthought mm -hmm. it opened i believe in 1980 i think this was the third well, my first year was its third year in existence but literally uh they were about to open the the you know get ready for the first game and someone said oh, where's the press sitting <laughs> and it was a uh, oh right so they had to take they took out like about two or three rows at the back of the arena built a uh, concrete uh, block wall and then put jammed everyone in behind that wall and i mean jammed you were right up against the back of the building <laughs> and it was, uh, people trying to get behind you to walk by it was it was it was not a good spot for a fatter individual let's just put it that way <laughs> so we are our radio position is right over the home uh, uh, or the Toronto, uh, the visitors blue line. And uh, so having said that with this concrete wall, literally over the wall, as you looked over, maybe about three or four feet down were heads. And if they stood up, they were within probably a foot or two of you. And so you, you were literally broadcasting from in the stands. And when Mike Foligno scored and uh, when Nikki Boroshevsky certainly scored, 
I well, we would have some discussions with the people who were in front of us, and most of it. But in fact, I'd have to say all of it was good natured. No one turned around and threw a beer at us or tried mm-hmm. to take a punch at us or whatever. And I am a loud individual when I broadcast, and so I hope that they were enjoying the uh, the broadcast because they were getting it for free uh, mm-hmm. right behind us. But they, when Detroit would score, they jump up and turn around and start screaming and hollering and you know. <laughs> waving at us and whatnot, and all good-naturedly, and that's fine. So mm-hmm. when Nicky scored, and certainly when Mike Foligno scored, I leaned right over the edge, and I made sure they knew who <laughs> scored the goal, and they would turn around, and they, they would be all upset and everything. So we had a lot of fun with that. Mm-hmm. But the other thing was is that when, when Nicky scored and when Mike scored, they had switched ends, obviously. So instead yeah. of us being in the defensive end of the Toronto Maple Leafs, we were now right over the blue line of the defensive end of the Detroit Red Wings. And for Nicky's goal, for sure, um, Bob Cole, who was further up the press box row, closer to the other blue line, um, didn't have as good an eyeball of it that I did. And I knew exactly that uh, Bob Rouse had taken the shot, but Nicky had touched that puck. And so when you get a huge goal like that, you really hope in our business that you see it right and call it right. Yeah. And that was something that was uh, I was most proud of, that I was able to identify immediately that it was Nicky Boroshevsky who had scored. And I, I felt so bad so bad for my confreres in Chicago when they ended that long Stanley Cup drought and the winning goal no one knew was in the net for Mm -hmm. seconds until Kane started celebrating. And so there is no iconic call of the Blackhawks ending their Stanley Cup drought because it's, oh, it's in the net. Well, oh, great. Well, that's uh, that's too bad. But uh, and, and and you, you know, if you're going to get it, if you're going to get a big moment, uh, you hope that you get it right, and yeah. you hope that uh, it will be something special. And both of those goals in that series were very, very good. And Thomas, I, I'll give you one other point about that. I've not really been able to sit down and watch that series in its entirety, the way we have under these quarantine uh, rules. Tonight, um, I'm not sure when your podcast is going to air, but Tuesday night, we're going to have game six, and then on Friday night, game seven. Um, So we're going to get to see Nikki's Nikki's goal again. And I have just absolutely fallen in love again with Bob Cole and Harry Neal. Mm-hmm. who do just an absolutely unbelievable job. And I had the pleasure of working with Harry for a number of years doing midweek games and just really appreciated his insight, his uh, his professionalism, his humor uh, is just unbelievable. And I have uh, uh, really enjoyed that. Harry and I uh, talk every twice a week. Um, and I have been phoning him down here said, you're on the TV again, for God's sakes, Harry. I hope they're paying your royalties. But so far, I don't think they have. But it's been uh, it's been a real treat uh, watching those guys as well. So that's the story of those two goals in Detroit. Uh, it was more so where I was sitting uh, than anything. And Harry and Bob, you know, obviously two of the all time greats in the business and just well respected all around. And, you know, it's almost perfect because, you know, obviously we're recording this on a Tuesday and on Friday is when the episode's going to come out. And the fact that game seven's on that Friday, that's almost just too perfect for me. So that that's just amazing timing. (laughs) 
You know, one of the things, too, you have to remember about that series and, and that goal. Nikki Boroshevsky played game one, mm-hmm. completed game one, did not play in game two, three, four, five, or six. Wow. He had suffered a broken orbital bone. And uh, he plays game seven with a with a shield on. But Nicky was 145 pounds soaking wet. Um, <laughs> he was one of the great additions that uh, uh, Cliff Fletcher and Pat Burns made to that team. He was he scored 34 goals that year for the Leafs yeah. and played with Andrew Chuck and Gilmore a lot of the time. And here's this little guy goes down, and but he grips it out, tough as nails, comes back and plays, scores maybe one of the biggest goals in Maple Leaf history. Yeah. Next year is limited to just 45 games when he suffers a spleen injury and has to have his spleen removed. And then literally his career ends. He plays 12 games another year, maybe 10 or 19 the following year, and, and then he's done. He he uh, runs a bunch of hockey schools around here in Toronto, and I run into him every once in a while. Uh, Nicky was a delight. He came over with a big grin on his face and couldn't speak a word of English, and yet would try. Dmitry Marinov, you swore, was a KGB agent. He mm. never said boo. Mm-hmm. Quiet, very reserved. He was the Russian guy. And they were like uh, two different peas in a pod. But Nikki would try to learn the language. And uh, if they do have uh, the interview after the game, uh, Ron McLean trying to get anything in English out of Nikki after the game winning goal is uh, worth the price of admission alone. Now let's move on to another moment, which I think a lot of people would now place number two on all-time uh, Toronto Maple Leafs goaltender moments. Of course, back on March 18th, 2008, you had one of the more infamous calls in NHL history when Rob Davison decided on a PK to shoot the puck from his own end behind his own net, ended up bouncing like a tennis ball into the net past Vesa Toskala, scoring a, what you quoted, a 197-foot goal, something that is rarely ever seen. And that puck was just bouncing all over the place. In your years of broadcasting, had you ever seen a moment like that in your life? Uh, No, but playing I did. And I Mm -hmm. brought this up in the broadcast after the goal. Uh, Ted Scarf, who uh, played with me in Coppercliffe uh, with the Redmen and midget hockey uh, and went on to play with the Kitchener Rangers and then into the WHA and has become a very successful real estate man in Kitchener and has been a long, long time uh, president on a number of occasions of the Kitchener Rangers uh, uh, publicly owned uh, team. Uh, He was playing forward for us. We were two men short. And uh, we were hemmed in our end. It was awful. We were just under siege. Scarfy got the puck behind our net somehow, and he could really shoot it. And mm-hmm. right standing beside me on the goal line, wound up and iced the puck. And he shot it into the corner of the far end of the rink, and it was in the air going to hit the boards on that. And he bull- bolted to the bench to get a player change because he was completely out of gas. And I sat there watching the puck. And when he hit it, it must have been on edge Mm -hmm. because it was now heading to the corner. And then all of a sudden it was curling like a curveball. And the goalie had gone out to play the puck. And this thing just kept curling and curling and curving and went into the top corner in the net. 
from wow. the goal line. So I'd seen that, and I thought that was absolutely unbelievable. Mm -hmm. But the, the Vesatoskula thing, you just knew because it was going to bounce that there was going to be an issue, and it certainly was. Now, what you forget is the Leafs won the game 2-1, and Vesatoskula was one of the game stars. Yeah. So as much as he's in the highlight reel for an awful goal, he played really well that night. But yeah. uh, that, was, uh, that was one of the stranger things. But if you watch it long enough, you're going to see stuff that you never saw. One of the other strange things I remember is um, uh, Daniel Alfredson, was skating by the front of the Maple Leaf bench. And after each period, because they can, they take off the advertising on the boards and put up new advertising for the second period. Mm -hmm. So, you know, an advertiser is sold, you're going to get the rink board for the first period, and then so-and-so is getting it for the second and third. Well, the boys, I guess, didn't quite do a good enough job of getting all of the adhesive onto the uh, onto the boards and Daniel Alfredson came down the wing and got rubbed up against the boards and <laughs> piece of the advertising attached itself to the rump of his uh, pants and as Daniel <laughs> continued down the boards this piece just peeled off the boards and now Daniel Alfredson skating with all of the advertising dragging behind him. Well, of course, they had to blow the whistle and peel the stuff off of his pants. And, I, and Harry Neal and I were doing that. I said, I don't think I've ever seen that before. And mm -hmm. he said, no, I don't believe I have. So wow. you know, between that between that, and uh, having the Viagra advertising in front of the mic, uh, the Montreal <laughs> bench, and uh, uh, having Harry Neal with a couple of comments about that, uh, that's, uh, yeah. yeah it, they're, they're, they, the game is, it's not World War III. And I, I tell broadcasters like you who ask me for, points and tips and whatnot mm -hmm. um you can't it, game seven Stanley Cup overtime yeah okay it's world war three it's going to be up here and that's it's just you, they're going crazy but um you have to ebb and flow with it you've got to uh, almost be like an opera singer where there's going to be highlights lowlights but don't don't give the game away don't yeah. cheat the game the other guy's goals are just as exciting and just as important as the one for your own team. You might give the, your own team a little more of a boost, but you can't cheat the game. And the other thing is you're going to see stuff that you never thought was possible, and every night's going to be a different situation like that. So if you do see some advertising floating behind a guy, you'll know that it has been done before. Why have I never seen that moment? I'm going to have to look that up later on. <laughs> uh, let's talk about another moment and obviously lives on in history. It's only been a few years since it happened. But on October 12th, 2016, the season over in Ottawa, out comes some kid named Austin Matthews and scores four goals in his NHL debut. Of course, becoming the first player in modern NHL history to score four goals in his debut. Of course, the Leafs lost that game in overtime uh, to Ottawa. But Matthews would go on to have an amazing season. 40 goals, 29 assists, winning 164 of the 167 first place votes, winning the Calder Memorial Trophy with flying colors. Obviously, Matthews has been here with this team since that day that lives on forever in Leafs history and is obviously considered, you know, a huge turning point for that franchise. 
obviously he's had a big impact but how big of an impact has Matthews really been since his debut well and, and obviously a very special night for all of us um, and um, uh, obviously a, a tremendous night for a young man uh, he, he scored a hat trick this year it's the first time that he's actually had a hat trick as opposed to the four goal game yeah um one of the things that I uh, am proud of, and, and really, again, it was just happenstance. Uh, at that time, with uh, Lou Lamorello in charge, we weren't uh, allowed to travel on the charter anymore with the hockey team. Oh, wow. So we had to travel in uh, the day before the game or the day of the game and then wait overnight and fly home the next morning, which we were doing in, in Ottawa. We stayed in the same hotel that they did uh, out in Canada. And after the game, um, we went down to the bar for a, a little beverage, and uh, I got to meet for the very first time uh, Austin's parents. Wow. And they were there, and obviously giddy as hell, and they, uh, they had the replay of the game on, and uh, visuals, uh, camera shots of the two of them sitting in the stands. And I said to them, I said, um, I'd like to give you my call of the four goals and so i i got to our uh, radio station they packaged them up and uh, shipped them off via email to me and i advanced the email to uh uh brian and his wife and so the next morning when we came down and we were all going back to toronto on the plane they're almost in tears um oh, wow. they were ecstatic that uh, uh we've been able to do that um, we've become very good friends ever since. And, uh, and that was a very special moment, uh, not only for me, for them, and for uh, Austin himself, obviously, um, that is something that you were able to share. And uh, I've tried to do that with everybody's first goal. Um, that's the first time I ever had to do it with somebody's first four goals mm -hmm. because it was all in one night. So that was very special, and you obviously mm -hmm. knew um, the first pick overall was going to be um, not a bust, and uh, there's no guarantees. There have been a lot that have not panned out to be, um, you know, uh, offensively prolific the way that they had uh, looked in junior hockey. Uh, it's a huge step, and this young yeah. man obviously made it and is continuing to make important strides in the right direction even now. Yeah, and he's going to be a big key part to this Leafs team uh, to really push them towards the right direction. Uh, let's move forward to obviously a milestone for you on March 7, 2017, marked your 3,000th NHL game. It was against the Detroit Red Wings at the formerly known Air Canada Center, now of course known as Scotiabank Arena. Obviously, you know, really emotional night for you, I would imagine. And the Leafs picked up the win in that, and of course they honored you in the middle of the game. And even TSN's Gord Miller and Ray Farrell gave you you know, so much credit, of course, you know, you obviously talk with a lot of broadcasters around the NHL. There's so many amazing ones, yourself included. Um, just describe the night for everybody. Um, you know, how emotional was that night for you? I think one of the things uh, when when I first came to Toronto, uh, you know, it was uh, you're stepping into uh, some hallowed footsteps with uh, Foster Hewitt and Bill Hewitt. Uh, Ron Hewitt, no relation, um, was doing the games and decided to go into radio sales, and that's why I got my opportunity in 1982. Um, 
Paul Patsko, who is a hockey historian and a good friend that uh, lives here, uh, came up to me one time and asked me, you know, before I did my 3,000th game, how many games have you done? I said, well, I don't know. You know, and I, and I, I got to think, you know what, I'm going to try and find that out. So I, I started a, a little uh, uh, Excel page and went through how many games. I have missed games because I was ill or uh, family issues, uh, health issues, things of that nature, birth of a son. Um, so I, I knew pretty much what I'd missed. Now, how many had I done? So I gave him that, and he said to me, you know what, I think you've done more games than Foster Hewitt. I said, really? And he said, yeah, I'm going to check into this. And he did painstakingly going through newspapers that showed uh, the, uh, uh, you know, they used to have all of the listing of what was on the radio when there was no TV. Then they had TV listings, what was going to be on TV tonight. And so he went through that and said, you know, Joe, they only did a game a week initially, uh, then the playoffs, uh, they didn't do all of the games, they didn't do all of the, the home games, uh, everything else. So he went through this and came up with a number uh, of how many games he thought Foster Hewitt had done. And by then I was past him. Wow. I thought, wow, you know what, that I think that means more to me than anything. Mm -hmm. uh, 3,000 arrived uh, mainly because they haven't found anybody else that wants to do my job. Well, maybe there are a few people that would like to do my job, but um, they, it, it, it arrived. It was a very special time. It's a it's a milestone and it's, uh, you know, just something to uh, to uh, be proud of. And that's mm -hmm. something that I, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't think about it when I started. Uh, I just wanted to do game two. Uh, never mind anything uh, that would resemble 3,000. So that was uh, that was very special for me, and it, it, it was something that I will never forget. And I'm going to turn my phone off here because someone's trying to phone. <laughs> I got and the Notre Dame fight song on the phone. Ah, uh, yes. Of course, you've got a you know a lot of relations with Notre Dame. Of course, Green Bay Packers. And um, I just critically wanted to get your opinion. I know it's not hockey related, but obviously the draft just happened, and a lot of people scratching their heads about the Packers moving up in the draft and drafting Jordan Love. W what was your opinion on that move? Um, twofold. One, as a fan, you wonder why we didn't get a wide receiver. We got the best quarterback in the league. But if you are a manager. Uh, and I don't, I haven't seen Jordan Love play. I have very little information on him. Uh, uh, but you know what? I, uh, I didn't know much about Aaron Rodgers mm -hmm. when he came to Green Bay either. So um, as a manager, you have to think well outside the box and the tunnel vision that you would have. Um, whether he is the heir apparent or not, uh, we'll have to wait and see, but you can't argue with a manager who wants to be there long term, not just for next year. Uh, hopefully they'll be able to do something in the interim to uh, um, put another piece to the offensive puzzle together. But I think um, the team they have right now is pretty damn good.
Yeah, I have to agree. As a Green Bay fan myself, I mean, you know, I'm obviously <laughs> skeptical about the pick, but, you know, obviously you focus about the future for the long run. And, you know, if something happens to Rodgers, obviously Love will be next in place to take his spot. So I think Green Bay doing the wise decision in case something were to happen to, to Rodgers. But that's a story for another time. Let's shift back to hockey. Another moment for you, as I mentioned uh, when I was introducing you, you were inducted into the media wing of the Hall of Fame uh, in 2018, receiving the Foster Hewitt Memorial Award. And, you know, obviously another emotional night for you. And of course, uh, you know, Foster Hewitt being widely considered as one of the greatest broadcasters of all time. Uh, describe that night for for the people listening to the to the uh, podcast and just how special that means, uh, how much that means to you. Well, um, I worked for a team that Foster Hewitt initiated radio broadcasting for. Uh, he is obviously uh, the patriarch of, of our industry. Uh, I work in the Foster Hewitt Memorial Gondola. Uh, as I mentioned, I've done more games than Foster Hewitt did. And to be awarded that very prestigious award uh, with his name attached to it, I think it's sort of like the Green Bay Packers winning the Vince Lombardi trophy. It, mm -hmm. it means maybe a little bit more to them uh, than others. Um, I grew up listening to Foster, obviously, uh, and Bill, and uh, I always thought Danny Gallivan was the best broadcaster I ever heard and that, mm -hmm. uh, and is the best one that I have ever heard, although I hated his guts because he was doing the Montreal Canadiens games <laughs> until I met him. And then uh, Thomas, I, he was like Johnny Bauer, one of the nicest people you ever met. Mm -hmm. I felt terrible telling him that I hated him. Uh, but ha having said that, um, yeah, it was very, very special. Um, I enjoyed it. I had my four boys with me, which was uh, also extraordinarily important uh, for me. Um, so uh, they got to enjoy it as well. Um, I wish it had been in the off season. Um, I had to do a game in Boston on the Saturday, flew home and had an event at the uh, Air Canada Centre uh, to do on Sunday afternoon, got together with family and friends on Sunday night, and then a full day of activity on Monday, and I was on an airplane at four in the morning flying to Los Angeles on Tuesday. Wow. So it was a whirlwind thing. And no I wish it had been um, in an, a time where we'd had three or four days to kind of plan out different things that we might have been able to do with family and friends. Um, but still, it, it was a very, very um, important piece for me. It was a, a, a tremendous honor and one that I'm uh, extremely proud of. Yeah, I would imagine so. Obviously, you know, a huge honor to be obviously associated with a name like Foster Hewitt. You know, it's a huge honor for anybody in broadcasting and hockey. And, you know, obviously for yourself, amazing, amazing moment. Uh, let's talk about one final moment that, you know, happened most recently. And a lot of people would probably put this as their number one moment, not for a really lack of a good term. Uh, of course, the Leafs beat Carolina back on December 23rd in that unbelievable comeback. Of course, you remember it. Uh, your son David was up there because it was around Christmas time and everybody was on their Christmas break. The Hurricanes on February 22nd would end up getting their revenge and it would come from just out of nowhere and just the most unlikely of circumstances. With 8.41 left in the second period, 
Clifford and Morazic were chasing after a puck in the Carolina end. Clifford collides with Morazic, and Reimer had been hurt before the game started. So then in comes a 42-year-old Zamboni driver named David Ayers and becomes the first emergency backup goaltender in NHL history to record a win. Of course, you know, people go back to Foster uh, with Chicago. Technically didn't get the win because he didn't play the majority of the game. David Ayers becoming the first one to do it, making eight saves on 10 shots and becoming a superstar overnight. Of course, you had, you know, you had to call that game. And obviously, you know, a lot of people have never seen this before, especially a goalie played for more than half of the game. It's really an amazing moment. And a lot of people put this over top of the game seven loss to the Bruins in 2013. When you compare the two, which one do you think is more heartbreaking for the least fan base? Well, it didn't matter whether they won or lost that game. It was still going to be the story about David Ayers. And if they won the game, well, they beat a, you know, a backup goalie that wasn't there. And if they lost, well, then they lost too. So the Leafs weren't going to win that either way. Mm-hmm. Um, Lynn Patrick played a goal, and he was he wasn't a goalie. He came in in the playoffs and won a playoff game for his New York Rangers because he was the manager. Uh, a local product, Jerry Topazzini, uh, three times he was, uh, uh, goaltenders got hurt when they only had one goalie, and three times Topper put the equipment on, and he totaled 60 minutes of play and did not give up a goal. So he holds wow. the National Hockey League record for the lowest goals against average in the history of the sport. And you can go to the Beef and Bird, and I'm pretty sure that everybody there will tell you exactly that. But having said that, um, you know, I, it, there are a lot of moments that uh, kind of transcend the actual game that's going on. And, uh, you know, it, it, that that was one of them. And, uh, you know, it, it, he, he, he played well. It, I don't think he was overly taxed. I think that the people in front of him were the ones that really went all out and played extraordinarily well in that game. All of the Carolina Hurricanes did just that. So having said that, you know, it it was, um, again, I'd never seen anything like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you watch it long enough, they say you'll see everything. Well, that was something that I had never seen before. And uh, David Ayers will uh, have a lot to talk about when he has kids and grandchildren. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, you know, it's going to live in infamy because that's all people were talking about. They still talk about it today. I mean, people regard it as, you know, the worst loss in Leafs history. But I mean, you know, you go back to the collapse in 2013, something that just nobody saw coming. And that was that now, was a different now, era. Thomas, do you know Eddie Goodell? Uh, name sounds familiar. Eddie Goodell? Tim, you never saw this either. <laughs> that's when Bill Vex sent a midget up to hit. And his strike zone was about that high. Walked, never got back into the game again. So, hey, you watch it long enough to see everything. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, you know, you talk about the game. Obviously, the Leafs had a decent start. Of course, Kerfoot scored the only goal in the first period. But then it was just all Carolina from there scoring four consecutive goals. The Leafs were trying out a comeback. But Warren Fogel putting the game away in the third period. And, you know, Obviously, an emotional night for a lot of people. Obviously, people were still behind the lease that night. 
But when David Ayers came in and when he was named first star, not a single person was sitting down and just, you know, everyone was soaking in the moment because this is something that may never even happen again. But like you said, anything well, can happen. Yeah, the whole thing is that uh, everybody was living their life vicariously through this young man. Mm-hmm. Um, how many how many people, how many guys sitting in the stands thought, fine, I've only been given a chance. I could have played in this league too. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we're looking back at my son David's career and saying, you know what, it's not fair. Don't ever believe that it will be. But mm-hmm. here's a guy that... Yeah, no chance of ever playing. All of a sudden, he's in, and guess what? All of us were sitting there going, God, wouldn't that have been neat if I had gotten <laughs> a chance to do that? Wouldn't have mattered if they scored 10 goals on me. Just yeah. be there, just to get into the game. And, uh, and lo and behold, he did. Now, Joe, one final thing we'll talk about, and you were actually on TSN Radio earlier today talking about this. Uh, TSN has done a couple other lists of all-time sevens for Montreal and (laughs) Calgary. They just recently released the list for the Toronto Maple Leafs, and you were on earlier today talking about it. And just to run through the list for those that haven't seen it yet, of course, it runs by you know a full roster, two goaltenders, six defensemen, and four lines of forwards. Uh, Of course, the goaltenders, Turk Broda and Johnny Bauer, of course, you're really good friend the defenseman obviously no surprising names on here Bory Salming Tim Horton King Clancy Red Horner Alan Stanley and Bob Bond and then the Fords is where it gets really really nostalgic Busher Jackson Sil Apps uh, Charlie Conacher Frank Mahovlich Matt Sundin Rick Vive Wendell Clark Austin Matthews Lanny McDonald Bob Bulford Dave Keon and George Armstrong and then a foundational uh, foundational player they put in was Ted Kennedy who played from 43 to 55 now obviously there's a few omissions from the list that have a lot of people scratching their heads and of course uh for management they put punch Imlock and for uh as head coach and general manager con Smythe. and then of course the cuts that were on this list are surprising to a lot of people curtis joseph thomas caberlet jimmy thompson sid smith daryl sittler and ron ellis is and especially doug gilmore which you know surprised a lot of people um I'm going to listen to it later on. I haven't yet. Um, but what, what's your opinion on this whole all-time sevens list? Do you think this is a justified list and is uh, is good in your eyes? Well, that, uh, Steve Dryden of, the, of TSN uh, has started this thing. And since we have no games to talk about and critiquing other players or uh, watching games and enjoying that, all it was designed to do is exactly what it has managed to do create some controversy, get people talking, having some fun with it. Uh, There are a lot of criteria. First off, you had to play the position that was your normal position. Mm -hmm. Um, So instead of having Sundin with Gilmore and Sittler as your number one line, uh, well, you can't have that. Um, Mm -hmm. They all have to play center ice because they played center ice. One of the criteria was you want to have a checking line. Okay, so that rules out some offensive players, and that's why Dave Keon is playing with George Armstrong and company there. Um, You had to play 225 games for that team. So you can't have uh, uh, Ron Francis and uh, and Leach uh, playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, However, it, it did manage, and then the other one was 
you had to have a member of the current team on that list. So, and that's fine. So that's the criteria, then go about it. And uh, the problem that the Leafs had was that um, they are very dominant with their uh, best players over the history of their franchise at the center ice position. Apps, Kennedy, Sittler, uh, Keon, uh, Gilmore, Sundane, uh, you know, it, it, that's where the difficulty is trying to put four there and have a guy off your present roster could you have fixed it by saying okay morgan riley's going to play defense instead of uh alan stanley yeah okay then now you're now you're trying to decide between sittler and gilmore maybe who should be uh on that roster or is it absent kennedy who should be different or whatever and uh, i when we were talking about it today I hearkened with a, a, a situation I had with my son, David. Uh, we were going through Twitter and somebody put up um, uh, a list. They said, OK, list the top five baseball players you have seen or been on the face of the earth with. Mm -hmm. And I said, Willie Mays. Easy. Willie Mays. My 19-year-old son said, Mike Trout. <laughs> so it's the criteria, right? Yeah. The criteria was laid out by Steve Dryden. You have to fill in where you are with all of that. And so you're going to get lots of uh, uh, dissension, if you will, as to why my guy is on there. But if you aren't old enough to have watched Apps and Kennedy, and there aren't an awful lot of people that are, I'm not one, mm -hmm. um, then, you know, how, how do you take into account the vast history of this organization got to be a lot easier doing the Anaheim Ducks um, <laughs> than it is the Toronto Maple Leafs, right? And, Probably. And, and I'm sure they're going to have some discussion there. And of course, Montreal got into a big kerfuffle because they had to have a present day player. Oh, uh, 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 Carey Price. Okay, mm -hmm. well, now you've got Jacques Plante, Ken Dryden, uh, Patrick Waugh. Oh, Patrick yeah. doesn't make the team. Oh, wait a minute here. Mm -hmm. He's in the Hall of Fame. So every team that has a longer history um, are going to find that it's a lot more difficult to uh, to do than teams like Edmonton or whatever. Uh, and yes, they've had some marvelous stars in Edmonton, and there'll be some discussion, but um, we don't have someone who has sit uh, and watched every Toronto Maple Leaf game to come about and say in his era, Sillaps was better than Austin Matthews has been in his era against that same type of uh, uh, thing. So uh, all it's done is created some controversy, some fun to talk about, and maybe take a few people's minds off the current things that are going on with this quarantine. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, with over 100 years of hockey, you know, it's hard to narrow down a list like this because there's so many players that go through that organization. But, you know, DSM making a really good list of a lot of memorable names. I mean, obviously, that list is going to change a lot of people's eyes. But when you put roles into consideration, obviously, you know, the list is going to be different for everybody else. Joe, this has been an unbelievable uh afternoon uh i can't begin to thank you enough for joining us on the show and you know obviously we're all missing hockey and i'm sure you're missing it as well and a lot of people are obviously missing your calls on the radio uh you know i'm i would imagine everyone is already following you on twitter but where can everyone find you on twitter 
Oh, uh, uh, it's uh, Bonesy Tweets, at Bonesy Tweets. So, yeah, that's uh, we have some fun with it as well. And you just got verified too, which is obviously really <laughs> good. So every everybody knows that it's you. I mean, there's no question that it's you. Uh, Joe, before you go, I, I have a favor to ask, I, and I can't help but ask. Um, could I possibly get something along the lines of like, hi, this is Joe Bowen. You're listening to the Deep Geeks podcast. Now, what's it called again? The Deke Geeks Podcast. Deke Geek. Okay. All Deke right. Geeks, yes. Holy Mackinac, you're listening to the Deke Geek Podcast. And enjoy yourself with Thomas. That's awesome, Joe. Uh, this has been an amazing, amazing experience. Thank you very much for uh, oh, welcome, joining us this week. I'm sure a lot of people are going to enjoy this. That's going to do it for episode four of the Deke Geeks Podcast. Thank you all very much for tuning in this week. Until next week. That's Mr. Joe Bowen. I'm Thomas Mercier. Stay safe out there, and we'll talk to you again next week.